This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. This month's Tracks on the Trail broadcast takes a different track by focusing on one song and its various manifestations in the history of election politics. Woody Guthrie wrote his song, This Land is Your Land, in 1940 as a protest to Irving Berlin's God Bless America. As such, it participates in a rich American heritage of left-leaning folk songs, anthems, and chants of protest including the hymn-like We Shall Overcome of the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, John Lennon's song Give Peace a Chance, and the chant Hell No, We Won't Go for the war in Vietnam in the early 1970s, and most recently the chanted phrase Black Lives Matter for the eponymous protest movement. Unlike these other time-bound songs and chants, however, This Land is Your Land has served the musical needs of multiple generations of presidential candidates in such campaigns as those of Robert Kennedy in 1968, George H.W. Bush in 1988 and 1992, and Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders in the current election cycle. But how could a protest song by a left-wing musician end up on a Republican playlist? Guthrie composed This Land is Your Land with a refrain and six verses, three of which paint an idyllic picture of natural beauty, prosperity, and harmony, while the other three present an ironic counter-narrative of protest against class oppression. As we shall see, this multivalent potential for This Land is Your Land affords diverse interpretations and performance, each depending on context. To help us unpack the political and cultural work accomplished by This Land is Your Land in campaign 2016, Trax has gathered a team of specialists. First and foremost, PhD student Michael Kennedy from the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati. Joining him is Dr. Justin Patch, adjunct assistant professor of music at Vassar College, as well as Trax co-editors Dana Gorzolani-Mostak of Georgia College and James DeVille of Carleton University. This is Cannon McLean for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Chugga 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 chug chugga chugga chug campaign music chugga 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 chug chugga chugga chug chugga chugga chug tracks on the trail. Tracks on the trail. And now for the news. Now I had the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's a truth. And I owe it all to you. Shortly after the second presidential debate, we learned that America really, really wants the two candidates to break out into sweet love songs with each other. Videos and memes show Trump and Clinton appearing to sing duets on the debate stage, the most popular being I've Had the Time of My Life from the blockbuster 80s film Dirty Dancing. 
Other honorable mentions include Baby It's Cold Outside, Separate Lives, and Up Where We Belong. We have so many adversaries overseas. Can we all agree to be frenemies? Will these enemies become friends in the end? Not according to Weird Al Yankovic, who joined the Gregory Brothers to create an auto-tuned rendition of the third debate's most memorable lines, titled Bad Hombres, Nasty Women, the Presidential Debate in Song. Excuse me, my turn. You were very much involved in every aspect of this country. Very much. And you do have experience. I'd say the one thing you have over is experience, but it's bad experience because what you've done has... Stephen Colbert also weighed in, but rather than love songs in autotune, he relied on a string quartet to underscore the debate as it unfolded in real time. Television ads and commercials often make use of instrumental underscore to subtly shape the viewer's emotions and perceptions. Perhaps Colbert wanted to see how this might play out in a live context. Hi, I'm stage and screens Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm going to be singing you some Trump tweets today. Lin-Manuel Miranda is back at it again with another creative rap. This time, he draws his inspiration from the Republican presidential nominee's Twitter account. I have not changed the word of these, only added melody. In the video, Miranda sits on a tour bus in New York City and adds vocals to three of Trump's tweets. These tweets include... Happy Thanksgiving to all, even the haters and losers. Happy Cinco de Mayo! The best taco bowls are made in Trump Tower Grill. I love Hispanics. And... I would like to extend my best wishes to all, even the haters and losers, on this special date, September 11th. He ends the video with a moment that seems to be straight out of The Office. He stares into the screen and closes with a single word, vote. On October 17th, the Hamilton creator joined fellow castmate Renee Elise Goldsberry as well as a cast of other past and present Broadway stars, including Neil Patrick Harris, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Bernadette Peters, to sing in support of Hillary Clinton at a Stronger Together fundraiser held at the St. James Theater in New York City. I got this feeling inside my bones. It goes electric wavy when I turn it on. On another New York City block, Activist group Humanity for Hillary busted a move in a flash mob set to Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling. Hundreds of dancers participated in the event dressed in colorful pantsuits, a nod to the Democratic nominee's famous, or some might say infamous, style. If an officer stops you, always be polite and never ever run away. Promise mama you keep your hands inside. Hillary Clinton shared a heartfelt moment with Mary J. Blige, who spoke out against police brutality on her new Apple Music TV show, The 411. Blige asked the Democratic nominee if she could call her by her first name, Hillary, and then sing a powerful cover of Bruce Springsteen's American Skin, 41 Shots, a poignant song that recalls the tragic death of Amadou Diallo. Your American skin, oh. 
The touching moment between Clinton and Blige initially received negative criticism, as many on social media portrayed the interview as cringeworthy. Hillary Clinton, however, found the performance Mary J. Blige shared with her to be profoundly impactful. And you can as a playlist of songs that Donald Trump will hate by the Washington Post, a group called Artists for a Trump-Free America has been releasing a new song each day to send a strong anti-Trump message to the populace. With songs such as Million Dollar Loan and Old Man Trump, this group is sure to shake things up as the candidates march towards Election Day. Next, it's time for your monthly roundup of Musicians Against Donald Trump. The newest additions are Bono of U2, The White Stripes, and, you guessed it, The Backstreet Boys. So maybe you didn't guess that last one. But Trump has noticeably used The Backstreet Boys' hit pop tune, I Want It That Way, at his rallies recently. Turns out they don't want it that way. We suggest Trump try the NSYNC song Bye 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 next time. May the best boy band win. For this month's Musical Anomaly, we'll return to Tracks creator Dana Gorzolani Mostak. Hillary and Donald are in New York today, campaigning for the White House. Which one will get to stay? Bernie is away then He was a pretty bad bet And that lying old Ted Cruz I hope we can forget From the 2008 electoral cycle to the present, YouTube served as the home for many parody campaign songs. Pre-existing tunes set to new candidate-specific texts, that is. But for a few exceptions, the most famous, or infamous, being Donald Trump's USA Freedom Kids with their parody of George M. Cohen's propaganda tune, Over There, 2016 parody creators tend to rely on current pop tunes or classic rock for their campaign-themed compositions. One group, however, decided to bring the campaign song back to its roots in the 19th century, a time when folk ditties, minstrel favorites, and patriotic fare provided the melodies for the candidate-inspired texts that served to uplift one candidate or lampoon another. In late July, American Pioneer Music released a politically neutral album titled The Candidates from New York. Both parties and the political process become subjects for playful derision in the song's title track, which uses the sidewalks of New York as its tune, 
a tune likely untouched by candidates since the 1928 bid of native New Yorker Al Smith. The album's 10 additional tracks, Five for Clinton and Five for Trump, offer witty texts and good old guitar strumming paired with tunes such as Oh Susanna and the Marines Hymn. While the RNC featured the G.E. Smith Band playing classic rock in Cleveland, and the DNC kicked it old-school style by featuring 1960s icon Paul Simon, American Pioneer Music decided to go really old-school, 1860s style, and that makes the group and the candidates from New York, an anomaly this election cycle. This is Dana Gorsalini Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. And now for our featured contributor, Michael M. Kennedy, and his essay, This Land is Once Again Your Land, Woody Guthrie and the 2015-2016 U.S. Presidential Race. This Land is Once Again Your Land, Woody Guthrie and the 2015-16 U.S. Presidential Race. This is Michael Kennedy, Ph.D. student at the University of Cincinnati for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. In U.S. electoral politics since the 1980s, many candidates have branded or even rebranded themselves as hip and cool by utilizing hit songs from mainstream popular music. As a significant example of this trend during the 1992 U.S. presidential election, Bill Clinton mobilized MTV culture by using rock, with Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop serving as his campaign's theme song. Recent scholarship has contextualized how political campaigns harness pop music's lyric and sonic attributes to attract constituencies diverse in age, race, class, and gender. In this era of musically cool political spectacles, the folk expression of one of America's most politically active musicians, Woody Guthrie, has persevered. The singer-songwriter used his art and ideals to fight inequality, persecution, and bigotry amidst the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, and the Civil Rights Movement. Influenced by prairie radicalism, the Oklahoman championed the working class and spread his socialist ideology throughout U.S. urban centers during the naissance of America's folk revival in the 1940s. Following a career shortened by Huntington's disease in 1952, Guthrie's popularity grew in the 1950s and 60s through the efforts of his contemporaries and the subsequent generation of folk musicians, including Pete Seeger, Jack Elliott, and Bob Dylan. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. Written in 1940 and first recorded in 1944, Guthrie's celebrated This Land is Your Land has become a popular fixture in U.S. electoral politics. Contributing to the reception histories of both song and artist, this essay examines the myriad ways that This Land is Your Land and Guthrie's working-class heroism have impacted political discourse during the 2015-16 campaign cycle. As folk music scholar Will Kaufman describes, 
Guthrie wrote This Land is Your Land as a protest song to counter Irving Berlin's God Bless America from 1938, which Guthrie hated for its sanctimonious and jingoistic themes, as well as its ignorance of true working class experiences. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mouth. This Land is Your Land now exists in several versions, which evoke different interpretations. First copyrighted in 1956, the song's complete lyrics comprise a chorus refrain plus six verses that portray complex images of the nation. Some regard its idyllic natural beauty, while others concern its deplorable class oppression. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the back side, it didn't say nothing. In the 1950s, schools and church organizations presented This Land is Your Land in recordings and publications, but diluted the song's message by omitting its protest lyrics and retaining only the three idyllic verses and refrain. This sanitized version became the standard patriotic anthem in the public's consciousness, much to Guthrie's dissatisfaction, according to Mark Allen Jackson, a scholar of American folklore and popular culture. Continuing Guthrie's legacy, fellow folk musician and political activist Pete Seeger consistently performed This Land is Your Land in its complete version with the protest verses included, with occasional variances in order and wording. But the efforts of Seeger and other folk artists have not dethroned the song's standardized, politically eviscerated form. The song's origins and protest illuminate its radically socialist intent, which sometimes coincides with and at other times contradicts its political usage. This Land is Your Land served as a central theme song in the presidential campaigns of Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 and Republican nominee George H.W. Bush in both 1988 and 1992. As experts on music and politics, Benjamin Schoening and Eric Casper explain how Kennedy employed the song's entire message which accorded with the candidate's liberal platform of economic equality and racial reconciliation and justice. In contrast to court moderate middle-class voters, Bush's use of This Land is Your Land focused on the song's refrain and hook to promote a narrative of prosperity while aligning the candidate with the filtered public perception of Guthrie as a patriotic American artist. The New York Island and the Redwood Forest Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. However, Bush's narrative ignored the folk icon's communist leanings and condemnation of both the upper class and conservative ideology, thus exemplifying the possible misrepresentation of a song's meaning through its appropriation. During the 2004 U.S. presidential race, this Land is Your Land affected both liberal and nonpartisan political discourse. Democratic nominee John Kerry occasionally participated in and played guitar for sing-alongs of the song, which denoted different ideologies depending on the venue. At his Midwestern campaign stops, the song functioned in its popular American anthem form to attract rural voters and eradicate Kerry's aloof, elitist persona.
Yet at his July 8, 2004 celebrity fundraiser at Radio City Music Hall, the event's anti-conservative rhetoric reinvigorated the song's ultra-liberal interpretation in a sing-along led by John Mellencamp, Dave Matthews, John Fogarty, and John Bon Jovi. But the most celebrated use of Guthrie's song during the 2004 election cycle occurred through its parody titled This Land, a flash animated video created and released online by the digital entertainment studio JibJab. This parody featured cutout animated figures of Carrie and George W. Bush singing alternate lyrics that attacked each other's perceived flaws and utilized the new refrain, This land will surely vote for me. This land is your land, this land is my land, I'm an intellectual. Praised for its humorous, nonpartisan ridicule of the two candidates, Jib Jab's video quickly became a viral hit and appeared on several major news outlets. Guthrie's leftist intentions for This Land is Your Land were fully realized on January 18, 2009, in Washington, D.C. at Barack Obama's pre-inauguration We Are One concert, where Seeger, alongside Bruce Springsteen and a large choir, led an audience of more than 400,000 in a rousing performance of the song. Once again, Seeger included the oft-forgotten protest lyrics, with his typical variations in wording. And, as anthropologist Mark Peddlety suggests, this seminal event provided progressive activists a, quote, unifying sense of hope and national identity. In apparent attempts to recapture the 2009 optimism for their Democratic Party, Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders extensively incorporated This Land is Your Land into their 2015-16 U.S. presidential campaigns. I hope I remember all the words. Do you remember the words? Okay. The song not only aligned with O'Malley's concern for working-class well-being, but it also provided him an opportunity to demonstrate his strong musical background. This land is your land, this land is my land, from California to New York. Proficient on guitar and vocals, O'Malley performed Guthrie's song, among other favorites, at many of his campaign stops. And the troubadour candidate frequently included the song's additional protest lyrics, as explained in Brian Barone's Tracks article. Often inviting audience participation, O'Malley's live performances may have recalled the 2009 We Are One concert, while also providing nostalgia for his constituency by simulating group singing in the mode of the mid-20th century folk revival. Sanders' fervent working-class and socialist platform strongly corresponded to Guthrie's ideals and music, which the candidate reified with his publicized visit to the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa in late February 2016. From his campaign launch on May 26, 2015, to his reluctant endorsement of opponent Hillary Clinton in July 2016, This Land is Your Land served as a theme song for Sanders, who already had an association with the song. As I went walking 
that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless... Collaborating with other folk artists while he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, Sanders recorded a cover of This Land Is Your Land for his 1987 folk album, We Shall Overcome, which features five protest songs of the civil rights movement popularized by Odetta, Guthrie, and Seeger. While This Land Is Your Land did not appear on Sanders' campaign playlist, the song served multiple purposes on his presidential campaign trail. It appeared in videos created by artists who support the candidate, and in the programs of tribute concerts and rallies, which provided launching points for interactive sing-alongs. You know we gotta play one more for Bernie, right? We know he likes this one. As I went walking, that ribbon of In these live settings, musicians led the performances while Sanders faded in and out with his vocals, such as at Sanders' March 1st, 2016 Super Tuesday celebration in Essex County, Vermont, with Cat Wright and the Indomitable Soul Band. Depending on the lead singer's familiarity with the song's little-known protest lyrics, the performances occasionally presented the song in its complete form. Furthermore, the various renditions of This Land Is Your Land during Sanders' campaign comprised a wide variety of musical styles, including folk, indie, hard rock, soul, and reggae. This strategy espoused cultural diversity, manifesting Guthrie's belief in the integration of black and white working-class cultures, while countering perceptions of Guthrie that consider him to only represent the white working class, as suggested by historian Brian K. Garman. Community singing and dancing allowed Sanders to participate in the song's expression while hiding his limited musicality and speech-singing vocalizations, reminiscent of his 1987 recording. But these interactive performances also typify musicologist Christopher Small's concept of musicking, which challenges scholarly assumptions that regard music to be solely an object or self-contained work. Small proposes that musicking, quote, is to take part in any capacity in a musical performance, whether by performing, by listening, by rehearsing or practicing, by providing material for performance, or by dancing. Musicking denotes activities or rituals that create sonic and physical music scenes in which social relationships are formed, which Small identifies as relationships between person and person, between individual and society, and between humanity and the natural world, and even perhaps the supernatural world. And these relationships provide essential musical meaning by defining both individual and societal identities. Translating Small's theories to the political realm, Sanders' sing-alongs of This Land is Your Land promoted themes of community, nostalgia, and equality for middle and lower class America. Through musical interaction at campaign rallies and concerts, Guthrie's anthem sonically authenticated Sanders' socialist platform, while providing his supporters the experience of physically enacting the candidate's message. Simultaneously, the musicking rituals on both O'Malley's and Sanders' campaign trails helped to restore the song's radical leftist working-class origins. In these cases, music solidified political identities within a community of individuals who were united in their political beliefs and actions 
thus illustrating political scientist John Street's theory that campaign music operates both as an expression of political causes as well as a cause of political expression. This land is your land's presence in the remaining U.S. presidential race will probably subside, with both O'Malley and Sanders now out of contention. Yet, Guthrie's leftist radicalism may still serve as an opponent to conservatism leading up to November's election, such as it did in early 2016, when the national media pitted the folk icon's tenets for racial and economic equality against Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Kaufman's recent archival research determined that Fred C. Trump, Donald's father, was Guthrie's landlord in early 1950s Brooklyn. As a developer of urban public housing in the post-war years, Fred Trump frequently faced accusations of profiteering and racial discrimination. The former led to a U.S. Senate committee investigation in 1954, while the latter ultimately resulted in two civil rights cases brought against the Trump real estate empire by the U.S. Justice Department in 1973 and 1978. Among the documents Kaufman discovered were Guthrie's writings that lamented old man Trump's unethical and bigoted practices, including his welcoming only white tenants. While Guthrie imagined living in an integrated community with a diverse cornucopia of races and ethnicities. Stimulated by Kaufman's findings, American news outlets mapped Fred Trump's background onto Donald Trump's campaign and used Guthrie's ideals as a means to censure the Republican candidate's racially charged rhetoric. On July 12, 2016, in hopes to unify Democrats, Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton as their party's presidential nominee. However, there is little evidence that Clinton will assimilate Sanders' fondness for Guthrie, who is not without controversy regarding gender politics. Guthrie's perceived sexism has blemished his legacy, as he abandoned his domestic responsibilities and exploited his female relationships while becoming what Kaufman characterizes as America's favorite hobo. Associating herself with this perception would be counterintuitive for Clinton's feminist platform. Moreover, as Christiana Barnard's and David Dewberry and Jonathan Millen's Tracks articles explain, Clinton's campaign playlist strategically has signified gender diversity and feminine strength through contemporary artists, leaving little room for Guthrie's music to affect the remaining election cycle. But, in numerous instances that connected Guthrie's working-class heroism with political discourse, the 2015-16 U.S. presidential race has demonstrated that Guthrie and his music could be politically cool once again. This is Michael Kennedy for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. This land is your land. This land is my land. for you and me.
heard Ph.D. student Michael Kennedy sharing the history of This Land is Your Land in American presidential campaigns. Joining us today with Michael are Tracks on the Trail co-editor Dr. James DeVille, professor of music at Carleton University in Ottawa, and Tracks on the Trail contributor Dr. Justin Patch, visiting assistant professor of music at Vassar College. I'm Dr. Dana gorsalani Mostak, assistant professor of music at Georgia College and creator and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in the studio today and via Skype. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. It's good to have you here. So we're actually going to start off, Michael, that was a really fascinating essay, and we'd love to ask you some questions and talk a bit about it, starting with Jim, who has a question for you. I'll admit that I only know the refrain, and I suspect that that's the case for most Americans who are familiar with the song. If that's the case, how does the song work in practice? if the audience is involved. Does the leader sing the verses and the audience carry the refrain? But I've got a second part to the question. However, sometimes YouTube videos reveal that the original verses, and they could be either idyllic or protest, are preempted by versified references to local or current events or concerns, which would be of a protest nature. And I posted Arlo Guthrie's version of the song at the Kennedy Center, Given the song's flexibility, and you and yourself point out how the protest verses could be jettisoned, how does that problematize issues of authenticity for this and other protest songs? What or where, then, is the text for This Land is Your Land? Yes, thank you, Jim. Well, taking the second part first regarding its authenticity, from when Guthrie first conceived the song in 1940, he actually performed many different versions himself in both live and recorded settings, interchanging words and verses. My essay mentions Mark Allen Jackson's article, which presents an efficient compositional history of the song, and Jackson explains how the song kept changing for Guthrie all the way up to 1952, when his career uh, ultimately subsided due to health reasons. And then the song's complete lyrics were first copyrighted in 1956, more than one and a half decades after the first version. But it is very hard to actually find recordings, either audio or video, that present those copyrighted lyrics in their totality. So as a folk artist, Guthrie seemed to have actually intended for it to be flexible in performance, whether live or recorded. And he seemed to have authored the song to facilitate performance events rather than to solely be a fixed musical work, which is why when it comes to issues of authenticity with folk music and other forms of popular music, I'm always a bit wary to contemplate what is the authentic, quote, text. And especially in this case, I do feel the song's authenticity occurs through its performance, where an audience is then able to become part of the song's aesthetic. Just as my essay relates Sanders and O'Malley's campaign sing-alongs to Christopher Small's concept of musicking, Guthrie's music in and of itself enables the process of musicking, which connects the ideals of like-minded individuals through this musical interaction. So I believe that any questions of the song's, quote, authenticity should consider not its text, but rather how it's situated in performance, and then how its performance communicates Guthrie's messages of community and equality. Thus, those recent versions of the songs that use alternate lyrics referring either to contemporary or local events or perhaps even broader national interests can still be deemed authentic if we are able to identify Guthrie's ideals and values in these performances. 
answering your first question with regard to how the song's full version works in performance, with so many of us having been unfamiliar with the protest verses, there are different options for presentation. There is usually a leader-follower dynamic in which lead performers sing the verses while everyone else joins in the refrain. In this case, the group can listen to and physicalize the verses and then confirm the general sentiment of the song with the refrain response. But there are also examples that break out of this mold, particularly with the process of a lead singer lining out the verses for the audience. This often occurred with Pete Seeger, who, of course, as I discuss in my essay, was a peer of Guthrie and who promoted Guthrie's legacy and served as a folk artist who presented what we might consider truly, quote-unquote, authentic performances of the work. And with Seeger's extensive career, he probably performed the song more than anyone else ever has, including Guthrie. Seeger would often line out the verses, including the protest verses, for his audiences, which he actually demonstrated with the 2009 We Are One concert before Obama's inauguration, which I discuss in my essay. To line out the verses, in the few beats before each lyrical phrase, Seeger said the full line to the audience, and then everyone could then sing that line to the melody. So in this case, everyone could participate directly with the song's textual message. Now, with the We Are One presentation, Seeger had assistance from other featured performers on stage, including his grandson, as well as Bruce Springsteen and a large choir behind them. And we can assume that all of those featured performers practiced the song ahead of time, or at least had a chance to study the words. Thus, it was not exactly a spontaneous performance of the protest verses. But for everyone in the audience, the process of lining out allowed the verses to be spontaneous for them and they were able to musically participate with the entire song and thus to embody its message. Which is why in my essay I reference Mark Peddelty's article which describes this We Are One performance as being so seminal for the liberal community because it was a highly publicized performance that enhanced the song's promotion of community and sharing of progressive ideals. So it's hard to determine the varying degrees to which the song is empowering for an audience depending on its performative process. We might assume that it is more empowering through the process of lining out, since in that situation the audience actually can sing all of the words. But I also think it would be an erroneous assumption to suggest that those audiences who simply follow their performance and only sing the refrain don't also share in the song's sentiment, or that such a leader-follower dynamic results in an, quote, inauthentic performance. Since, as I have discussed, the song as a performance text has great flexibility, there is truly no singular authentic mode of performance, I feel. That's interesting because the lining out reminds me of the human microphone of Occupy Wall Street. And having looked at some of the responses of people to that, some of them felt empowered by it. Some of them were not quite so empowered because they felt like then the message was being imposed on them. Yes, that's a very good point. And truly, so much of Sanders' campaign has seemed to borrow from the Occupy movement. And as you suggest, the, that whole process of lining out is problematized in and of itself, whether it actually is an authentic experience or not for the audience. You might want to just briefly explain, Jim, what the human microphone is. There were restrictions on the types of amplification that could be used in Zuccotti Park, where Occupy Wall Street situated itself at the beginning of the protests. So because the megaphone was not allowed, they developed the principle of the human microphone, 
where the speaker would enunciate something and then those people who surrounded the speaker would repeat it so others in the park and in you know progressive circles outside could hear it so it became then a kind of lining out where someone spoke words a short sentence a phrase and then they would be repeated by others by those in attendance yeah and you're right that you know you do see a lot of that process going on in unofficial spaces outside of campaigns as well and i think michael you're absolutely right when you talk about sort of how the sanders campaign how sanders supporters i should say have really sort of taken on sort of the, the musical aesthetic and the ethos of the Occupy movement to a certain extent as well. Well, and I think it also needs to be said that Bernie Sanders has borrowed a great deal from the ideas that really animated the Occupy movement, sure. especially sure. with the college tuition stuff and, and debt and the idea of a lot of young people having truncated futures. And those are the very things that Bernie Sanders really went after in his campaign. And even the slogan, we are the 99%, is seminal in his campaign message. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I was just going to say that it, it's interesting, even now with the Black Lives Matter movement, that you see certainly some of the, the music associated with that also making an appearance in campaign context. I mean, the most famous example, of course, being when Trump was scheduled for that rally in, in Chicago and it was canceled and you had the crowd, you know, breaking out into Kendrick Lamar's All Right. And that's just kind of one example of this of this sort of thing happening as well, that sort of music already having these associations with protests, it's showing up in all these different contexts. On the other side, feeding into it, I can't help but think also of the church and evangelical practices of a call and response within certain, well, we'll say Christian denominations, that that must also feed into this idea of the lining out, for example, so that you have an interesting conjoining of the secular protest and the kind of Christian affirmation. Yeah, and, and the idea of, of repeating phrases also, if you look at the union movement and the labor movement in the early 20th century, used the responsorial chants for their, both their protests and their meetings. So, so there again, you know, in the early 20th century, you see the same overlaps of labor and religion that come together. We're going to take a short break for now, but then we'll be back via Skype with Michael Kennedy and James DeVille and in the studio with Justin Patch to continue our discussion on the colorful history of This Land is Your Land as a campaign song. This land is your land. This land is This land was made 
to the Tracks on the Trail podcast. We're now back with Michael Kennedy and James DeVille via Skype and in the studio with Justin Patch to continue our discussion of This Land is Your Land. And Justin, I believe you you wanted to ask Michael a question as well. Okay, so Michael, thank you for the essay. And I want to ask you to theorize a little bit about the experience of this. So, you know, how does the singing of This Land is Your Land communicate differently with different audiences. You talked about, you know, people learning it in, in school, people learning it in church. So what does this mean to different audiences hearing this? And the second thing is, how does collective singing change the meaning for the song? So people listening to the song versus people participating in singing at a rally. You know, given you've, you've looked at Woody Guthrie and his politics, and do you think that the modern campaign accurately represents Guthrie's intention? Yes, thank you, Justin. Uh, let me consider your first two questions together. I do find that the song's meaning, whether with or without protest verses, is very much dependent on its audience and the group's engagement with the song. Uh, true, the song communicates differently for a conservative or conservative-leaning audience than it does for a liberal one. Conservatives tend to rely on its status as a patriotic anthem that describes this nation's idyllic features akin to the lyrics in, say, America the Beautiful. Um, and this could also be true for moderate Americans, but leftist radicals can then identify with the songs versus that protest societal privation and privatization. But we should also consider that these differing interpretations have different origins for each of us. Whether conservative or liberal, or somewhere in between, almost all of us first learned of this music in our youth, as you suggest, most likely in school or similar environment, which probably utilized the patriotic, or as I like to say, the politically sanitized version. <laughs> so, Justin, as you suggest in our previous conversation, the song was initially filtered to us through mechanisms of state. And for those of us who identify with this version of the song, with its patriotic themes, the song functions more as a nostalgic connection to one's past and the morals gathered during one's upbringing, perhaps. But for those who have come to identify more with the song's radicalism and protest elements, these themes were probably learned later in one's life, most likely through a live musical performance like the ones I've mentioned, especially perhaps the We Are One concert. And thus, 
those events served as more of a musical or even political awakening or perhaps even reawakening. So in this light, the song can truly be interpreted as a call for change, for progress within our society. So certainly the, the song's meaning is actually reliant upon its audience's ideologies, and thus perhaps it is not only a process of communicating differently, but also a means of reifying one's beliefs, which then is achieved through the act of collective singing. And I absolutely believe that collective singing changes the song's meaning. Without this interaction, there is little sense of shared ideologies. It becomes a ritual of being, quote-unquote, performed at, rather than being able to perform with. And whether perceived as a conservative patriotic anthem or a liberal protest song, Guthrie, Guthrie's music is often dependent on that sense of community. This is the reason why so much of his music has simple melodic construction, so it could be shared more readily by the populace. Thus, a solo performance loses this sense of community and also somewhat negates any sort of nostalgia for the folk revival from when the song originated, when music making was about sharing. Um, a solo performance that is performed at an audience becomes more akin to being a fixed work, which, as I previously mentioned, seems to work against the song's aesthetic. And Justin, in response to your last question, do I think the modern campaign accurately represents Guthrie's intentions? I do think it's hard to exactly translate the culture and aesthetic of Guthrie and the American folk revival to modern campaigns, with so much of today's national politics determined by structural mechanisms and being overly produced, as it were. But I feel that Sanders' campaign, with musical sing-alongs being in incorporated, is perhaps as close as it can possibly be, at least for a major political party's candidate. In terms of politics, certainly Sanders has been one of the closest, if not the closest, to representing Guthrie's radical ideology, with Sanders having perhaps the most socialist platform for someone who almost received the presidential nomination. And the structure of his campaign does have a semblance of the grassroots DIY culture and aesthetic. From his campaign announcement, which seemed impromptu, occurring on the Capitol lawn in between sessions in the Senate, all the way up to the Democratic Convention, Sanders' persona seemed to have been founded upon the collective persona of his supporters. And we've already contextualized this grassroots DIY aesthetic with Sanders and how he's borrowed so much from the Occupy movement, which has demonstrated the power of individual expressions that grow to become societal expressions as well as the power of crowd noise in delivering political messages and uniting communal beliefs. So we can consider Sanders' campaign, quote-unquote, soundtrack, with the extensive use of live sing-alongs and the presence of crowd noise, to having provided nostalgia for the American folk revival, as well as having recalled political campaigns from and before the mid-20th century, before recorded music became the standard for political rallies. In contrast, Hillary Clinton's use of campaign music seems to be more produced and polished with lots of mainstream pop artists and no true semblance of the DIY aesthetic. We certainly have seen musical interaction with Clinton's constituency, such as we saw at the DNC, but in that and most other cases, the music plays at the audience and dictates or controls their involvement, rather than the sense of the music generating from or being empowered by the crowd, which is what we've seen a lot with many of Sanders' rallies. Even if most of Sanders' usages of music and other campaign elements were indeed structured through planned mechanisms, 
they were perceived or have been perceived as being grassroots in origin with a sense of casualness and spontaneity. So yes, I, I believe we have seen some examples of the modern political campaign, particularly with Sanders, that have somewhat accurately communicated Guthrie's ideals and intentions for his music. Um, now, I feel I should go back one comment. My saying that Clinton's campaign seems to have been very produced and polished is not necessarily a critique. For me, that strategy is representative of her preparedness and strong ability to serve as a planner, which are certainly qualities in public officials that I applaud. Um, but Clinton's campaign certainly has a different aesthetic than that of Sanders, and both strategies can be seen as having value, but now these opposing styles and campaign platforms have led to or are part of the problem of unification within the Democratic Party. On one hand, it would be hard for Clinton to now suddenly assimilate the DIY aesthetic, as it would also seem to be hard for Sanders supporters to accept Clinton's high production value aesthetic, which we saw in microcosm at the DNC with the protests and walkouts by Sanders supporters. So it will be interesting to see how this party tension plays out in the months to come. Okay. Thank you, Michael. So I've got one more thought that popped up, and that's the uh, different types of representation. That political representation, you know, representative democracy as we know it, and representation on the campaign trail works in one very particular way. And the way that musical representation, the way we think about what Woody Guthrie's music means, works in a very different way. So are we at a point where, where musical representation and political representation are irreconcilable? Or is there a way to bring those two together effectively? That's a very intriguing notion. And I actually do think with the way that modern politics has been structured, it's so different from mid-20th century when the American folk revival and uh, so many folk artists were generating a lot of political thought. I'm closer to agreeing with the notion that it, it's almost irreconcilable between the musical and political connotations that you refer to. Or are we looking for the music perhaps in the wrong place? I'm thinking about coverage of Trump rallies, and because the message is so negative, there's an awful lot of booing coming through from the audience, which suggests perhaps a, almost a greater degree of audience participation the more they vocalize uh, extemporaneously. I do have one more question for you, Michael, and this kind of goes along the lines of what Justin is saying about music representation. So, you know, in the essay you just read, you put a lot of emphasis on the lyrics and how sort of changes in the lyrics may alter the message of the song. But I wondered if you could speak a bit about how artists and performance style have an impact on meaning or representation as well. You mentioned the DIY aesthetic of the Sanders campaign and how unofficial events have featured This Land is Your Land performed in various styles. And by that, I mean in styles other than the sort of folk style that is associated with Guthrie and Seeger, the early interpreters of the song. Can you speak a bit more about how the generic connotations of certain artists or types of voices may shape the meaning of the song as well? Yes, well, uh, as I mentioned, the song's audience certainly helps to determine its connotation. So an example I've given, a liberal audience may identify with the song's messages of protest against class divisiveness and inequality. But certainly within that general meaning, audiences may experience it differently through different forms of emotional engagement, which is generated by the performing artist's persona, musical styles, and or their voice types. 
Uh, so in answering your question, I'm going to focus on different emotional expressions within a liberal leftist interpretation of the song, since that's what I've been focusing on with my essay. With the song originating from the folk aesthetic, its most common presentation as a folk tune does denote a sense of nostalgia for folk radicalism of the 1940s through 1970s. So this serves as a look back for the audience to radical movements that brought about change while serving to authenticate the song's historical origins. But with its renditions by indie bands that can be considered more rock or even hard rock, the protest theme takes on a feeling of almost angst, which perhaps engenders a sense of the song being an attack against conservatism and class divisiveness. Uh, now, its interpretation in a more soulful style of music promotes something entirely different, I feel. This can be heard in the excerpt that I provided for the podcast and uh, that I include as a hyperlink in my essay, which is from Sanders' Super Tuesday celebration featuring Cat Wright and the Indomitable Soul Band. Their sing-along utilized the strategy of the lead singers presenting the verses, including the protest verses, while the crowd joined in with the refrain. Now, during one of the protest verses, which begins, as I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, no trespassing. At that moment, the song's groove stops, or I should say just slows down, and Cat Wright, joined by the other female lead singer, luxuriated on the words, but on the other side it said nothing, that sign was made for you and me. So with that phrase and their soulful style, which with the quick melodic turns and soaring harmonies and their smooth vocalizations, it created a sentimentality for that notion of radicalism at that moment, as if romanticizing the notion of progressing towards a better society. Thus, this version seemed more forward-looking and hopeful rather than solely relying on nostalgia, as many other folk versions do, or rather than serving as an angsty attack on conservatism. For an example of another style, this past June, as Sanders tried to keep his campaign alive before the final primaries, he held a rally at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. And towards the end, in a typical fashion, there was a sing-along of This Land is Your Land. But this time, the performing group presented the song in a reggae style, exaggerating the song's offbeat groove and utilizing solo horn sections that alternated with the verses and refrain. So this reggae-infused version, on one hand, catered to the crowd's cultural diversity, but also created a celebratory atmosphere, even though Sanders would soon lose the nomination in the coming weeks. But the song in this context seemed to operate primarily as a celebration of diversity and working class values among various ethnicities. Now, last month's DNC brought yet another stylistic interpretation of the song, and but it is not related to Sanders, uh, but rather partly tied to Clinton. Early on during the DNC at the invite-only Camden Rising concert, Lady Gaga performed a solo jazz interpretation of This Land is Your Land, uh, along with other old protest songs. I, sh I should suggest, though, that while Lady Gaga was invited to sing at this event, I'm assuming that she was able to choose her songs so the tunes were not necessarily prescribed by the Clinton campaign, although they were probably okayed the selection. Now, when performing Guthrie's song, Lady Gaga began it with a slow, rustic introduction, uh, vocalizing it in her own unique way. And then that gave way to a jazz interpretation of the song in a quick dance-like style, which operated truly as a solo vocal performance complemented by improvised instrumentals, uh, and thus had little opportunity for community singing. The audience response to the song was rather raucous, 
and they were able to physicalize a song through movement, but there was truly no opportunity for community singing. So this was also an example of a song's celebratory connotation, but the context of this performance is interesting to consider in comparison with the other performances that my essay discusses. Lady Gaga adopting old protest songs into her modern style is very much true to her persona as a rebellious artist. And I find her incorporating Guthrie's music to be empowering for those who see her as a feminist icon and promoter of several important progressive movements. Also, her adapting the song to jazz demonstrates the song's stylistic flexibility and far-reaching implications. But I find there to be some cognitive dissonance with the venue and the audience in question, which perhaps seems inauthentic to the song and serves as an example of political appropriation, because this event was a celebrity showcase and invite only for DNC delegates and dignitaries. So the event was defined by its exclusivity and negated the song's promotion of inclusiveness and community, which is what we saw with the Sanders rallies. I'm not suggesting that Gaga should not have performed the song at this event, but I do think this example does not fully realize the song's grassroots context. I think we've come into sort of an interesting conundrum here about an artist's right to express themselves within a context that they're put. We saw this with um, Flaco Jimenez playing for George W. Bush in 2000 at the inauguration, and uh, a lot of Chicanos in Texas were very upset with him, and he said, hey, man, this is one of the best-paying gigs I've ever had. And so th we have a, a bunch of different levels of critique where we're looking at artists and repertoire and saying there's some inherent contradictions in this, but None of us were at the Camden Rising concert, and we saw Lady Gaga performing this on YouTube. And in an age of social media, are there bigger considerations than venue? Yes, that's an interesting point. And I do agree that it's sort of a paradox that this age of social media has actually enabled grassroots movements, many of which we've talked about, like uh, the Occupy movement and Black Lives Matter and all of that. And in this case, whereas the event itself was invite only and exclusive uh it being broadcast not on purpose but through uh, audience members uh on youtube sort of brings in that larger sense of community so yes there is a certain paradox or, or there's a, a way to problematize this idea of if whether a, a performance is actually political appropriation on the part of an artist yeah. or a political campaign and i think something to think about is obviously lady gaga's performance is controlled by either her or the Clinton campaign. So somebody saw fit to make this public by putting it up on YouTube. As we saw with Mitt Romney's remarks about 47% of people who will never work and all that sort of stuff, what is public and what is private is becoming a very, very fuzzy line in the age in which we live. And that somebody performing at a venue but choosing then to make that recording public does have an effect on the audience who listens and how it's perceived. Absolutely. Yes, and absolutely. I think you know, because of social media, what used to be specific moments that didn't necessarily have a life beyond that initial performance now sort of get these second lives as they're shared online. So it becomes another, you know, and I think this is what you were saying, Michael, it's a, another way that sort of communities are established through these music and another way in which sort of a broader audience builds up their identity or sort of participates in political discourse by sharing and sort of, you know, rehashing these clips and, and talking about them and so forth. And that's also certainly a part of it as well. 
We need to close here, but this has all been really fascinating, and we appreciate having all of you today to share your insight with Tracks on the Trail. So I'm going to remind you to keep an eye out for Michael Kennedy's essay on our website. I'll also check out Dr. Justin Patch's essay, which is recently published on our site as well. Once again, I want to thank Michael Kennedy, PhD student in musicology at the University of Cincinnati, Justin Patch, visiting assistant professor of music at Vassar College, and James Deville, professor of music at Carleton University and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail for joining us in the studio and via Skype today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. This is Dana gorzelani Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Tracks on the Trail. In a September 9 speech, Hillary Clinton offered up a catchy turn of phrase to the Twitter sphere when she claimed half of Trump's supporters could be put into a basket of deplorables. A week later, Trump fired back in the form of a visual mashup that featured his own mug, campaign slogan, and an American flag, combined with an image of the iconic pre-battle scene from Les Miserables. With this backdrop, Trump entered the stage to Do You Hear the People Sing, the rallying cry stoically sung by the musical student agitators, who soon after meet their untimely demise at the barricades. In Les Mis, audiences empathize with the student protesters. They are the heroes whose sacrifices we are reminded of as they reprise the song as ghosts before the final curtain drops. With this song, Trump makes another attempt to cast himself as an everyman, maverick, and an underdog who represents the values of the common folk and who stands up to the injustices inflicted by those in power. But we might view this choice of music in another light as well. In Les Mis, the act of suffering is romanticized. Les Mis's singing students, like other heroes of the musical, struggle and suffer beautifully as the audience looks on. One might argue this idea of the beautiful struggle works well for Trump. On the surface, you see a rich man, but that rich man wants to remind his followers that behind the glamour, there is a story of struggle. He is, after all, the people's billionaire. Trump has relied on quite a few musical theater tunes for the trail, but do you hear the people sing indeed suggests a change, at least thematically. Although their cause later comes to pass, the rebels in Les Mis die at the barricades. They are the losers, so to speak. Could Trump be inadvertently foreshadowing his own defeat? Will he be only a phantom after November 8th? Or will he get one day more in the spotlight as he ascends to the presidency? One day more. Another day, another destiny. This never-ending road to Calvary. This is Dana Gorzolani Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. How can I live when we are parted? One day more. Tomorrow you'll be miles away. And yet.
The Tracks on the Trail podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia College Department of Music and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tracks on the Trail was created by Dana Gorzelani-Mostak and co-edited by James DeVille. Sarah Kitts, yours truly, Cannon McLean, Sarah Farmer, and Andrew Spruill provide research assistance. Victoriana Lord provides support for the TracksOnTheTrail.com website. Tracks social media is coordinated by Sam Campbell. The Tracks on the Trail theme was composed and performed by, myself again, Cannon McLean, with additional vocals from Ryan Sokolowski. Morgan Mendez mixed and edited the theme. Today's program was edited by Daniel McDonald. You can visit us anytime at tracksonthetrail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen out for more on soundcloud.com slash WRGC. One day more.